Let me invite you now to open your Bibles to the book of Acts. Today we're in chapter 8 as we continue our series on this uh, glorious book. And uh, today we're going to read the first 25 verses of Acts chapter 8. Hear now the word of the living God. And Saul approved of his execution, that is the execution of Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, and he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him, they saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in the city. But there was a man named Simon who had previous, previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women, even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that if it's possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the blood of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me, Lord, to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, 
they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages in Samaria. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray today that there would be genuine help of your spirit for the one who preaches and the one who hears. And we pray that we might see the glory and beauty and uh, worthiness of our Savior, Jesus Christ, that we may be drawn to him, even those of us who know him, and even those of us who have known him for a long time, that we may see him uh, as beautiful today and be attracted to him to um, love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, for the next two Sundays, we're going to be focusing on Philip, who was one of the, I call them Magnificent Seven, the seven servers. And he is Luke's primary example here of a dispersed Christian driven from Jerusalem by the persecution that had been ignited by Stephen's speech and uh, the lynching that ensued. The dispersion of the church could be seen as a judgment on Jerusalem, which lost many witnesses of the Lord, but it also brought blessing to the nations. For those who had been scattered traveled along announcing the good news to the world. Philip's witness was central, for through him, old ethnic and religious and even racial walls were broken down, and two new kinds of people were welcomed into the church. And so as we look at the text today, especially the first four verses, there is a threefold cause and effect going on here. First, on that day, Stephen's death caused a great persecution. Second, the persecution caused all except the apostles to be scattered. The apostles remained in Jerusalem. Third, the dispersion caused those who were scattered to preach the word of God wherever they went. And to preach the word in Acts usually means to preach or share or speak of the gospel. And so the death led to persecution, the persecution led to scattering, the scattering led to increased ministry. Those who wanted to stamp out the church only served to spread it tremendously. Again, the irony of how God works. Satan's attack on the church through the stoning of Stephen and the persecution actually backfires on him in a major way and ushers in the fulfillment of what Christ commanded in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Even though Jesus told the disciples that the gospel was for every nation and every people, and even though Pentecost brought them the miracle in which the gospel was proclaimed in all the languages of all the nations, the early Christians were only spreading the gospel among their own people. When you look at Acts 2 quickly, the confrontation of Paul and Peter shows how difficult it is, excuse me, Galatians 2, for even the strongest believers, that is Peter, to understand that the gospel is for all, not just our kind of people, people we are comfortable with. We have seen that Stephen seemed to be the first Christian leader to grasp it and get it, that the gospel has a radical missionary energy and impetus to it. 
He realized that the gospel of Jesus means that God's presence is no longer tied to just one people or one land. Stephen was the first martyr. But now we see the immediate results of his death is the very accomplishment of his message. All except the apostles were scattered through Samaria, and those who had been scattered preached the word everywhere they went. Amazingly, God had to use persecution to get the early church and the early Christians to do what he had commanded them to do from the very beginning and that was what his will and want was for them. Now understand something about Samaria. Samaria is Gentile territory. And the Samaritans were more than likely uh, the product of um, intermarriage between the tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel and the Gentile peoples who had been transported into the regions of Israel by the conquering Assyrians. Under the Assyrians, worship in the region combined the idolatrous paganism of the expatriate Gentiles and their attempts to placate the Lord whom they viewed as the local deity. They feared the Lord and they served their own gods according to the decree of the nations from which they had been forced to immigrate. A temple was built to the Lord on Mount Gerizim in the 4th century BC. But to please Antiochus IV of Syria in 167 BC, that is the same year that the Maccabees resisted his imposition of Greek religion on Judea, the Samaritans readily rededicated their temple to the Greek god Zeus. Samaritans accepted only the book of Moses as scripture. So their hope for Messiah restorer was not a Davidic king, but rather a prophet like Moses. And although they uh, were respected by some Jewish rabbis for their adherence to the law, Samaritans were usually classified with Gentiles as outsiders of the house of Israel. There was a, um, as a matter of fact, they were outsiders and Jews did not share drinking water or drinking vessels with Samaritans considering them unclean. In view of the background and status of the Jewish-Samaritan relations, Philip's preaching in Samaria marked more than merely a geographical expansion, geographical expansion of the church's witness. The deep chasm of religious hostility and exclusion that had separated Jews and Samaritans for generation was bridged by Philip's announcement that the kingdom of God had arrived through Jesus the Messiah as many Samaritans believed the good news. Samaritans were regarded as half-breeds. Uh, they were regarded as mongrels by Jews. And so we see, and we're going to see, an amazing thing happen. So he used Stephen and his death, which by no means was in vain, and God can do very much through even one person yielded to his service. And what God can do through what appears on the surface to be a disaster is amazing. In the history of the church, there have been many notable examples of this. One of the most famous was the expulsion of all missionaries from China after the communist takeover in 1949. Seemed 
originally to be a disaster. But the result was uh, many of the expelled missionaries went to other parts of Asia and so spread the faith in unreached places and Chinese lay leaders took over the Chinese church and since they were indigenous to the people, the church exploded in size and vitality over the last few decades. It is now 30 to 40 times larger than it was 40 years ago. Both missionaries and Chinese Christians had become complacent. But personal disasters are also ways for the gospel to spread in all of our lives. In some ways, the worst thing for the spread of the gospel is success and a comfortable life. So as we are now in the throes of the COVID virus, I am reminded that our sovereign God will use these times as a platform for his gospel to run like a lion across the world. People are hopeless. People are looking for answers. People are living under intense fear and doubt and despair. And we have the good news. So who's doing the preaching of the word in these verses? And uh, what is the significance of that as we look at uh, uh, chapter 8? One of the most significant phrases in Acts is in verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Who was scattered? Well, it wasn't the apostles. They stayed in Jerusalem. All were scattered except the apostles. It was everyone else, lay people, not the clergy, lay people who were scattered. And the Greek word uh, rendered preached the word is the word we have for evangelize. This is how Christianity in 300 years spread from this little handful of people into every nook and cranny of the vast Roman Empire until it even converted the leadership and made the old pagan culture into a quasi-Christian society. Why did Christianity triumph in a world of dozens and dozens of competing religions and philosophy with more and far more influential adherents? Every Christian evangelized everywhere they went. Apparently, when the Christians were all together under the powerful and gifted leadership of the apostles, they had been fairly passive in their ministry. They had simply brought their friends to hear the great preaching at the church in Jerusalem, but when they were scattered away from their leaders, they somehow summoned up the courage to communicate themselves what they had learned. The result was, though they were probably less eloquent than the apostles, they were in in the end, far more effective. Why? Because lay people, being 100 times more numerous than professionals, quote, can reach more folk because a lay person's testimony often has a more authentic ring to the listener than a well-polished, articulate speech. When I share the gospel with the people, people they say, well, that's your job. That's what we, you're paid to do. I expect you to talk about it. When you talk to people about the gospel, they don't expect it. Because you're not being paid to do it. And, and so you're not getting uh, sort of the, the polished professional. On the one hand, in the church, there's been way too much clericalism. On the other hand, there's been way too much... Uh, Laicism. And so on the other hand, somewhere in between those is the biblical model. But I do know that the gospel took off in Samaria and there wasn't an apostle to be found until Peter and John show up. And so the gospel ran. It's powerful. 
And this is one of the practical differences between other faiths and religions and Christianity. It was not the job of the clergy to do evangelism per se. They did it to model and encourage people who had the main task of preaching the good news. When was the last time you talked to another person about the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because I'm going to tell you something. You get gospel opportunities all the time, especially during this time of COVID-19. Where people are, if you're interacting with many people, and maybe you're not, but you're interacting with some, people are on edge. And you have a wonderful opportunity, and some of you I know are taking advantage of these opportunities and these open doors. And I have to tell you, you have to completely be uh, deaf, blind, and dumb not to see the opportunities you have with other people to share the gospel, even now. Because they're uh, abundant. So what's so amazing about Philip going to Samaria? Well, I've already told you about the Jews and Samaritans who hated each other fiercely. It was a bitter ethnic rivalry on the order of the most terrible conflicts we have in the world today. Consider Beirut or Belfast or South Africa. When Assyria conquered the northern tribes, I've already told you, they sent people in to repopulate Samaria who intermarried with the Jews who were left. The result was what the nation of Judah, looking at Samaria, called a mongrel race full of half-breeds. And the Samaritans had their own temple. We've already mentioned that. You see that in Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well in, in uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 4. They were regarded as heretics. The hostility between Jews and Samaritans was far worse than relationships even with Greeks or Romans or other pagans. Jews do not associate with Samaritans. But here we are told Philip went to preach the gospel to the scandalous Samaritans in Samaria. He did ministry among the most despised people group that any Jew could ever uh, interact with. What does that tell us? It means the gospel had changed Philip's whole way of looking at the world. Once the gospel begins to get its grip upon us, it changes our worldview. We began to look at everything differently, but even people differently. Once we understand that we're saved by grace and that we're superior to no one, once we understand that the cross levels us and that the, the, the ground at the foot of the cross is level, Christ came for sinners. And our sin is not better than other people's sin. It's all heinous. And it's all idolatrous. But before the gospel came to Philip, he would have regarded the Samaritans as a hopeless case, too evil to ever receive salvation. Now the gospel has shown him that everybody is hopeless apart from the gospel. Every single person is hopeless. And that, and that everyone is evil and lost apart from the gospel. And that therefore no one is really more hopeless and evil than anyone else. And if anyone can be saved and changed and incorporated into the family of God because we're saved by grace. If the root sin of all people is idolatry, your idolatry is neither better nor worse than mine. And the idolatry of a Christian is no better than the idolatry of the most evil person in the earth. 
And so the gospel gives us, it deconstructs any grounds for feeling superior to others. That's why it is such a contradiction. It does not follow that a Christian would ever be arrogant or that a Christian would ever be anything other than broken and humble. That a Christian would ever, ever think himself or herself to be superior to or better than anyone else. And so what kind of ministry did Peter, uh, Peter, Philip have here? Philip did two things, and two things resulted. First, Philip came with words. He proclaimed the Christ, which he showed that he did not come teaching morality. He did not come talking about a new religion in general, but he talked about the gospel in particular. He did not talk about the minimum amount you need to do to get in to uh, good with God or the minimum amount you had to be to be approved by God but rather he preached the gospel he said Jesus is your everything Christianity is Jesus second Philip came with deeds he healed sick people he cast out demons and they shrieked and uh, Philip's deeds made the crowd play, pay very close attention to Philip's words. And that's an interesting statement. Philip demonstrated the power of the gospel by the lives that were changed as a result of the crowd being captured by his words. But the ultimate result was there was great joy in that city. And joy is a profound apologetic because so few people have it. But joy is one of the greatest apologetics a Christian can have. Finally, then, the ultimate result of the great joy in the city, the spiritual and physical he healing, lifted the whole city into joy. I want to talk just for a second about this concept of joy. There's something uh, that is amazing in the preaching of the gospel. But it was the visible, tangible demonstration of what Jesus had done for them spiritually as well as physically in Samaria that elicited joy. Joy is what God intended for us from the beginning. A measure of what Satan did in Eden, joyless creature that he now is and will be for eternity was to rob Adam and Eve of the delight that mankind ought to instinctively know and to have in the presence of God. We were made for Him and we were made to be close to Him and we were made to be in union with Him and to experience joy in His presence, glee, uh, happiness as it were. Our relationship to God is often so marred in the present by our suspicion of his goodness to us. Sinclair Ferguson called the prodigal son returning home, fearing that his father wouldn't accept him, so he offered to be a worker in his father's uh, gardens or in his, uh, in, 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 in his father's estate. And he didn't think God would accept him, but our relationship to God is still often marred by our suspicion of his goodness, which is a satanic device, to be sure, and the restoration to the wholeness that Samaria witnessed, a foretaste of heaven, brought forth a sense of an unimaginable joy. J.I. Packer passed away a couple of days ago, and he was one of my favorite theologians that I love to read I love to read him more than I did listen to him 
but uh, reading him has blessed my life more than I can tell you. And one of the topics that he writes on that I love the most is the topic of joy. As Paul asked the Galatian believers, where is all your joy? And we as Christians can live in the midst of suffering, in the midst of the terrors of the current situation in our country where everything is chaotic, we don't know what's going on with this disease, but we can have joy. Why? Because nothing can take it away from us in our relationship with the Father. We can be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And so, Philip preached and they experienced incredible joy. Joy is what Jesus' concern was when he prayed in the upper room. He prayed this in John 17, 13, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I'm beginning to believe that joy is the ability to enjoy and be comfortable in, even rejoicing in, the presence of God. Not being terrified by it, not being ashamed to be in it, but rather the full freedom that the gospel gives us to enjoy the intimacy of our relationship with God, no matter what else is going on inside us, outside us, bodily, physically, you name it. It is the sustaining power of knowing God. And so I, I think that's an amazing uh, testament to what was going on in here. Uh, and so they had experienced joy. And so we don't want to overlook the wisdom of what's going on in this passage. The only way that we will ever see a movement of God in our world is if there is a combination of word and deed ministry. We must not be too distracted by the fact that Philip's deed ministry was miraculous. We have talked before several times about the idea of um, that we should neither insist that all miracles have ceased nor insist that the church exhibit the same kinds and numbers of miracles at every time and every place. God is sovereign, period. The fact that Philip was that Philip saw physical misery around him and he worked on it. He brought about healing to the sick through God's power. Also, he saw spiritual bondage and he healed it, casting out demons. The crowds flocked and listened to the preaching. In the same way, the people of a city need to see Christians having compassion on those who are physically suffering, the poor, the dying, the orphan, the widow, and they need to see the changed lives of people who through Christ have been delivered from bondage, either psychological or spiritual or physical, and then they will listen to the gospel we say is so powerful in mass. So what would be the equivalent today of Philip's kind of ministry? Well, it would be somewhat different, but the most obvious equivalence to Philip's ministry would be when, for example, black and white share leadership in a church in a place like South Africa, or when Ulster Scots and Irish blue-collar workers share the leadership of a church in Belfast. But a milder form would be when middle-class people from suburbia move in and minister to those who are broken in the city. Now, we come to the case of Simon. And Simon, we're told, believed 
and was baptized. But what was his problem? What was his main problem? Peter says that his heart is not right with God, which means he is not a Christian, in my opinion. Some would say that Simon had been converted, but he fell away from grace and he lost his salvation. We don't believe that can happen if you're genuinely converted. But Peter's words in verse 23, I see you are in the gall of bitterness and in bondage or captive to sin, has the sense of now I see you and I perceive your true state. That is the best way to read verse 13, is that Simon intellectually was convinced of the truth of Christ, but there was no change of heart. There was no new birth. How do we know? Well, verse 19 shows that his interest was this ability. He saw power to heal people physically and spiritually, and he wanted that power for himself. He had been a magician and done the work of a magician, and that work is to have power. Now in the gospel, he saw a greater power, and he wanted that for himself too. In other words, Simon's fundamental and basic heart attitude did not change at all. He had just gotten into Christianity because he hoped to use it as a more effective way to rise up and get power over people rather than to humble himself and serve other people. He was still, in a sense, trying to save himself and keep control of his life. The way he had always done that was through gaining power over people. Now he wanted to do it through this new religion. This is a subtle and great warning to every one of us in this room. Some of us feel that we need approval in order to have happiness and value. So we may appear to convert, but we may be getting into Christianity just to get this nice group of people to love and approve of us. That's not salvation. That's not regeneration. That's not conversion. So our real salvation is not Christ, but the approval of people we want to approve of us, that is, other Christians. There's been no heart change, no real abandoning of our good works for faith in Christ work for us. We're just doing the old self-salvation in a new way. Or here's another example closer to Simon's pattern. Some of us feel that we need power over others in order to have happiness and value. We may always feel that we need to be running things and telling other people what to do. So we may appear to convert, but we may be getting into Christianity just because we see a new place, a new avenue where we can run things and pontificate and tell people how they ought to live. So our real salvation is not Christ, but power over others. There's been no heart change, no abandoning of our good works for faith in Christ's work for us. We're just doing the old self-salvation in a new way. So the mistake of Simon is much easier to do than you think. It's being done in the church all the time. Did he repent? We cannot be sure from his reply in verse 24, but John Stott did not think so. Let me read what he said. Simon's response uh, to Peter's rebuke is not encouraging. He showed no sign of repentance. Instead of praying for forgiveness, what really concerned him was not that he may receive God's pardon, but only that he might escape God's judgment. Simon's tears may have been tears of remorse or rage, but certainly not of repentance. In other words, Simon seems only concerned 
that he might be hurt, but not that he has hurt God. And that is not a good sign. And lastly, this morning, I wanted to touch on Peter and John coming and laying their hands on the Samaritan believers and them receiving the Holy Spirit, because one would think that already happened if they believed and were converted. But notice when they arrived in verse 15 through 17, they prayed for the new believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit. And the apostles' willingness to pray for the gift of the Spirit suggests an awareness that a work of God had actually taken place among the Samaritans. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus, but something was missing here. Instead of preaching the gospel or correcting misunderstandings, Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Prayer is mentioned in connection with the laying on of hands and may be assumed. The gesture appears to represent identification with and concern for the people you're praying for. But why had the Holy Spirit not yet come on any of them? Given the promise that those who repent and are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ will have their sins forgiven and receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit. That's what Acts 2, 38 and 39 say. Are we to conclu conclude that there was something deficient in the faith of the Samaritans? Luke seems to be at pains to stress the orthodoxy of Philip's preaching. The close attention paid by the Samaritans to what they had heard and the genuineness of their response. Was it because there were no apostles present? It didn't take? Luke later makes it clear that the Spirit can be given when the person baptizing is not an apostle. We'll see that in chapter 9. Was it because they needed to receive the Spirit in a more full, fuller sense for inspiration or for the reception of charismatic gifts? Was it because they specifically needed the Spirit to be given to them in this way to empower them for mission? The idea that they needed more of the Spirit is ruled out by Luke's insistence that the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. With the words, not yet, Luke indicates that the Samaritan incident provides a clear break with the norm we might expect from Acts chapter 2. The best explanation is that God himself withheld the Spirit until the coming of Peter and John in order that the Samaritans might be fully incorporated into the community of the Jerusalem Christians who had received the Spirit at Pentecost. God withheld the gift for his own revelatory and salvific purposes, not because of an inadequate response on the part of the Samaritans, I think people in Jerusalem couldn't even believe the Samaritans believed, and maybe they needed this too. But the apostles needed to be there as reliable witnesses on behalf of the church of Jerusalem, not to impart the Spirit because of their office. Significantly, in verse 25, they returned to, to Jerusalem to report what God has been doing, and the delay in sending of the Spirit put the Samaritans somewhat in the position of the Jewish disciples before Pentecost. They had a genuine faith in the risen Lord, but had not yet received the promised Holy Spirit. Neither the experience of those first disciples nor the experience of the Samaritans can be made a basis for a two-stage view of Christian initiation, either in a Catholic or Pentecostal or charismatic sense. These were unique events in salvation history, not the normal pattern of initiation known to Luke. 
And so you'll hear people build a whole system of doctrine and sanctification on this passage out of the book of Acts, which is perilous, to say the least. You have to take all Scripture and compare all Scripture with all Scripture. This is a salvation historical moment in which the gospel is moving into a new cultural group, a despised, uh, detested, hated group. And so when the apostles came, they authenticated the reality of their conversion and prayed that the Spirit would fall upon them, which he did. So here we see the work of God moving beyond Jerusalem into the, the lands in Samaria and Judea. And then next week we'll see Philip talk to an African, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch, and see the gospel begin to penetrate northern Africa. And so the gospel is a lion raging and roaring across the world. What we need to do as the church of Jesus Christ is set it loose among people. People need hope, and there is no hope anywhere else. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this passage that we've looked at today. There is just so much here, and uh, we thank you that uh, you're faithful to us, that you have shown us your love in such profound ways that we can experience the deepest sense of security and joy in knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And I pray the Holy Spirit within us will remind us in these coming days of gospel opportunities we have as we talk to people who do not know you, who have no hope outside of you, who may be thinking about religion or other means by which they can cope, but we pray that you would use us to share the gospel of Jesus, to do missions, because that's what we're called to. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.